Welcome back. Again, I'm Michael Cannon, uh, Director of Health Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute, and welcome to uh, the second panel of our conference on the Cato Institute's latest healthcare book, Overcharged, Why Americans Pay Too Much for Healthcare. The first panel focused mostly on part one of the book, which is uh, a diagnosis of a lot of the problems plaguing the U.S. healthcare sector. This panel is going to focus on part two of the book, which is what we should do about it. And uh, to introduce that panel, we have our esteemed moderator, Megan McArdle, a columnist from the Washington Post, formerly of uh, Bloomberg and The Atlantic. And she will be introducing our two panelists for you. Megan? Thanks. Sorry, I was fiddling with my phone. I'm not making texts. I'm just making sure I have a clock so that we end on time. Uh, so we have a distinguished uh, set of panelists with us here today. Um, we have Charles Silver, uh, who holds the Roy W. and Eugenia C. McDonald Endowed Chair in Civil Procedure at the University of Texas School of Law, where he teaches about civil litigation, healthcare policy, legal ethics, and insurance. His writings on class actions and other aggregate proceedings, litigation finance, medical malpractice, and legal and medical ethics have appeared in leading peer review journals and law reviews. John E. McDonough is, did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> He is the, a professor of public health practice in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T. Chan School of Public Health and director of the Center for Executive and Continuing Professional Education. In 2010, he was the Joan H. Tisch Distinguished Fellow in Public Health at Hunter College in New York City. Between 2008 and 2010, he served as a senior advisor on national health reform to the U.S. Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, where he worked on the development and passage of the, the Affordable Care Act. So uh, we now have a PowerPoint, um, which, we, which uh, Mr. Silver will run us through, and then uh, Mr. McDonough will respond, and then I will ask some questions, and then you get to ask some questions. So. Very good. Well, thank you all for coming. I want to start as David did, by thanking everybody who's participating in the program today and all of the people at Cato who have done just an absolutely spectacular job of producing the book and getting the word out about it. Uh, it's really, as an academic, uh, I'm not used to being treated this well, and I'm really delighted. That's all I can say. Uh, as explained, the second half of the book is about uh, solutions, and the main message of the second half of the book is uh, fairly straightforward. It's an optimistic message, I think. It's that we can have all the affordable, uh, first-rate health care we want. Uh, we just have to pay for it ourselves. We have to buy health care the same way we buy other things in markets, cars, uh, boats, planes, trains, whatever the thing is that you buy. If we buy it ourselves, then health care will work as well as things do in other markets where we buy things ourselves. Uh, there is a role for uh, insurance and other forms of third-party payment. It should be reserved for calamities, uh, and that's the way we use insurance in most other situations. We don't use insurance to pay for oil changes or fill-ups of our gas tanks or, you know, a new coat of paint for the house. We use insurance to pay for, uh, you know, devastating automobile accidents that generate thousands of dollars in repair costs or lightning strikes that set your home on fire. That's where insurance uh, works well. It doesn't work well in, in healthcare because healthcare is very predictable and often involves small uh, outlays. And so what we think we should do in the way of public programs, although we don't uh, have any uh, 
serious belief that this is going to happen is that we should reform Medicare and Medicaid and other health programs in ways that let consumers decide how uh, dollars are spent. Uh, so when consumers control the flow of money, the healthcare market will change, prices will fall, quality will improve, other innovations will occur that are pro-consumer, and life will be uh, that much better. Uh, the starting point for the analysis that supports this message is that third-party payment is the disease. It's not the cure. Uh, David and I are very uh, counter-majoritarian in this respect. Most uh, mainstream policy analysts in the healthcare sector think that when they see people who are not insured, that's the real problem. We gotta find a way to get those people covered by something. And our view is no, less insurance is better than more insurance. Those people might actually help save the system by generating consumer pressure from below for better and less expensive um, medical treatments. But the way that the insurance process works is it just establishes a cycle. Uh, when um, people are insured, they use more health care, and they use more expensive health care than they would on their own. The heightened demand for health care has the predictable effect on prices. It drives prices up, and it encourages the proliferation of medical services. The rising prices and the proliferation of services in turn cause people to be concerned about uh, the cost of health care. That wants them to, to, that leads them to want more insurance and more generous public programs. When they get those, you return to the first step. Now that they have more insurance and more generous public programs, the demand for health care goes up and the cycle um, repeats itself. Uh, this cycle is not something that David and I discovered. This cycle has been known about since the 1970s, shortly after Medicare and Medicaid came online in the mid-1960s. Uh, the economist Martin Feldstein did pathbreaking work on the impact of these public programs on the costs of healthcare. And what he found was that the existence of the programs created this uh, feedback loop. And I will uh, uh, violate David's rule of not reading your slides, but I'll read what Professor Feldstein wrote just to make sure you understand he gets the credit. He says, the spread of insurance causes higher prices and more sophisticated services which in turn cause a further increase in insurance. People spend more on health because they are insured and buy more insurance because of the high cost of healthcare. So this is not a new discovery, right? We've known about this problem for a long time, but we have not uh, addressed it. To the contrary, we have kept making things worse by relying ever more heavily on third-party payers to control the flow of funds. This is a chart that is unique to the book. I don't think it's available anywhere else. The, uh, the line that starts on the left shows the ratio of out-of-pocket dollars spent by consumers to uh, uh, dollars that are paid by insurers or other third parties like government payers. If you start at the left side, what you see is the line starts out around 1.8. What that means is that for every dollar a third-party payer was shelling out for healthcare, the patients, the consumers, were going out of pocket about $1.80. So they were spending more out of pocket than the carriers were paying for healthcare. But over time, and here in the, the, the especially steep part of the curve is when Medicare and Medicaid come online, over time this ratio declines dramatically. We go from almost $1.80 uh, back in the 60s to about, um, uh, I think that's about 17 cents 
uh, in 2010, meaning that for every dollar the insurer or, or payer shells out, the consumer is spending only 17 cents. So we have relied ever more heavily on third-party payers. This, is a, uh, this ends at 2010. I think if we carried it out to 2018, we'd be down to something like 15 cents or maybe 12, what is it, 11? David says 11, I, that's probably right. The rising bars on the right are per capita healthcare spending. And the inverse correlation should be just, it should just strike you between the eyes. The less we rely on ourselves, the more we spend on healthcare per person. And the logic is very simple, right? It's that we're insulated from the real cost of healthcare at the point of sale. Healthcare is ever more of a bargain at the point of delivery because we're paying less and less for it even as the cost of it, the, the amount of money that's being paid for it in the aggregate, is going up and up and up. And this just stimulates demand. Uh, and as a consequence, what we get are rising prices for uh, insurance. Think about it this way, right? What we face is a, a, a difference between fixed costs and marginal costs. The fixed costs are our insurance premiums, our taxes, things like that that we have no control over. The marginal cost is what we pay at the point of delivery, so we focus on the marginal cost, we ignore the fixed cost, meanwhile the fixed cost just keeps going up and up and up endlessly, and we are all collectively impoverishing ourselves. Every one of us at the margin is ignoring the full cost of the services, and collectively we wind up very poor. Um, uh, this can't go on forever though. This is another bit of ancient wisdom uh, from Herbert Stein. If something cannot go on forever, it will stop. And the insurance cycle is no exception to this rule. As the cost of healthcare goes up, the premiums have to keep rising to cover that cost. And as the premiums rise, people will find insurance less and less affordable. Employers won't want to offer it. If they do offer it, they'll require employees to bear a higher fraction of the cost, there's higher deductibles. People in the individual market will start going bare, right? There's gonna be opting out of this system. And in fact, that is what happened at the start of the 21st century. This chart shows you the number of people who were covered by private insurance from 2000 to 2010. So keep in mind that the American population, the US population is growing over this period, but what happens is the number of people with private insurance declines from 205.5 million down to 196 million. So as insurance was becoming um, uh, more and more expensive, uh, people were uh, opting out of the system. And of course, when the Great Recession hit, uh, a lot of people lost their insurance. And so the insurance cycle would have come to an end, I mean, not necessarily completely, but what we were seeing was the development of a very large uninsured population, about uh, 50 million people. Now, as I said, mainstream policy analysts regarded that as a catastrophe. They believed that insurance equals access to healthcare, access to healthcare equals good health, and therefore the lack of uh, insurance is effectively uh, a death sentence and they want to do something about that. And what they wanted to do about that was Obamacare. Obamacare 
restarted the insurance cycle by expanding Medicaid and by mandating and subsidizing the purchase of private insurance. And it was very successful in accomplishing its main object, which was to bring a very, you know, a larger fraction of the population under the umbrella of some form of third-party coverage. So this is from 2013 to 2016, the percentage of the population under some form of public or private uh, coverage rose from 86.7% up to 91.2%. That's a, a decline in the uninsured population from 40, roughly 42 million Americans down to 28 million. So Obamacare did what it was supposed to do. Right? It was supposed to bring more and more people some form of third-party payment coverage, um, and uh, it, it did that. The problem is that when it restarted the cycle, the predictable result was that spending would dramatically increase because that's the effect of third-party payment on healthcare consumption. Uh, it drives it up. The promise was that Obamacare would save us money, right? Remember, for example, that people would start, once they had coverage, they would stop going to emergency rooms where healthcare is very expensive to deliver, and they would instead go to general practitioners where uh, care could be obtained much more cheaply. Well, the fact of the matter was that spending kept rising and in some instances rose more quickly than it had in the past. In 2016, healthcare spending uh, reached 3.4 trillion for the first time exceeding $10,000 per person in the United States. The effect on uh, insurance coverage, the cost of it, the typical American family of four covered by an employer-sponsored uh, PPO uh, well, went up went through the roof. It was $20,000 in 2010, it was $23,000 in 2013, and in 2018, it's estimated to be $28,000 for a typical family of four for an employer-sponsored plan. Uh, this is an enormous uh, amount of money. Um, so Obamacare proved two things. One is that when people are insured, they use more health care. It's not that they stop going to emergency rooms and go to physicians instead. They go to emergency rooms more often and they go to physicians more often. That's the way it works. And the other thing it proved is that there is no limit to the healthcare sector's appetite for money. We can throw as much money as we want at the healthcare system and it will find a way to deliver enough services to consume all of that money. Uh, the problem of the system is that it's very undisciplined. There is, as one of our chapters is titled, No Limit. There is no limit on what it can consume. This is a repeat of a statistic that I just uh, mentioned. The cost to a typical family of four covered by an employer-sponsored uh, PPO. This is from a Milliman report that just came out a few days ago. I really want you to see this. Somebody asked uh, in the first session, you know, why should we care how much healthcare costs? You know, if robots are replacing people at work, maybe we should be happy that healthcare is consuming an ever larger fraction of the economy. Well, this is what it costs a family of four to pay for uh, an employer-sponsored plan. Uh, these families are having to make real choices about what they get to do with their money because healthcare is crowding out everything else, right? They can't buy bigger houses 
which they might like because they have to spend money on health care. They can't buy new cars, which they might want, because they have to spend money on health care. They can't send their kids to college, right? Their kids have to take out educational loans because they're spending money on health care instead of saving money uh, for the future. So this is a real problem, and we need to get this um, under control. So what's the recommendation? If third-party payment is the disease, what's the cure? Well, as I said, we should pay for most healthcare services ourselves, and we should reserve third-party payment for calamities. And in fact, there already is a robust first-party payment healthcare sector. And in that sector, there is no cost spiral. Think about it. We have two different healthcare worlds. We have the third-party dominated traditional sector involving hospitals and doctors and all that stuff. And then we have the retail sector, where we have drugstores and we have minute clinics and we have physicians who provide services that are not covered by insurance, like LASIK, IVF, vasectomies, other kinds of treatments. The cost spiral is all in the third-party payment sector. That's where it is. There's no problem in the research, in the retail sector, nor is there a problem with fraud, waste, and abuse that has ever been documented in the retail sector. In the traditional healthcare sector, it is estimated that fraud, waste, and abuse account for one-third, excuse me, of all the dollars that pass through the system. That's a trillion dollars. That's an extraordinary amount of money. We could solve all the problems of access to healthcare if we could cut a trillion dollars out of current spending and reroute it to other things. And in the retail sector, we don't have anything like that. I don't know of a single study finding any significant amount of fraud, waste, or abuse in the first party payment sector. So we could solve our problems very quickly and very simply by changing the way that we um, pay for healthcare. One more thing that happens in the retail sector, which we don't see in the third-party sector, is that prices decline. This is a chart produced by Devin Herrick and John Goodman, who have studied uh, the retail health sector uh, extensively. And it compares the rate of increase in the cost of medical services in the traditional market to the rate of increase for cosmetic surgery, which is not covered by insurance, and people pay for it themselves. As you can see, the rate of increase for medical care, for traditional medical care, has risen much faster than the consumer price index, which is the middle line. And the cost of cosmetic surgery has risen less than the consumer price index. What that means is, in real terms, cosmetic surgery has actually gotten cheaper. Now, can you think of a hospital service that has gotten cheaper over time? This isn't the only example, by the way. The price, the real cost of LASIK surgery has estimated to have gone down by almost one-third over 10 years. So the, in the retail sector, things work the way they're supposed to work, right? Retailers try to figure out how to attract customers. They do it by offering better services at less cost. Uh, the, the traditional healthcare sector does not do that, and that's why things there don't work very well. So what are our positive prescriptions? I didn't mention these before, but one of them is eliminate tax exemptions and subsidies for healthcare and insurance premiums. These things just fuel the third-party payment insurance cycle, right? You're making the exemptions make uh, medical services and insurance 
seem cheap by comparison to other kinds of goods and services that are taxed fully, and so it encourages people to spend money there. We don't need to distort that kind of uh, spending in that way, and it actually, I think, hurts our health to do that because we are grossly over-relying on healthcare instead of spending money on other things that are conducive to good health. Um, another is we should let people buy whatever kind of insurance they want. We believe that if we do that, people will migrate toward catastrophic care because it, or catastrophic insurance because it is much less expensive than comprehensive uh, insurance. Um, then we should redesign Medicare and Medicaid along the lines of Social Security and the Earned Income Tax Credit. Instead of paying service providers to deliver services, which creates an enormous monitoring problem, just give the money to the beneficiaries and let them decide how to spend it, and then the federal government's monitoring problems uh, are over. And the last thing we should do is uh, eliminate barriers to competition. There are just a tremendous number of barriers. They create these local monopolies that providers exploit, uh, and they don't help patients at all, so we should get rid of them. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Nice to be here with you. This is my first time here at Cato. Interesting, nice building. Uh, sort of couldn't help noticing it's on Massachusetts Avenue. And uh, right across the park is the Samuel Gompers Garden. So um, where else but Washington, DC? <laughs> um, so I wanted to start just with, with a general reaction to the book and congratulations to the authors for a really compelling read, and I did uh, get through the, uh, the entire thing in a pretty short period of time. I, there's, some, um, there's some very, very important things here that I think are worth, are worth recognizing. Um, uh, one is the, the recognition that by, by folks on the conservative libertarian side of the spectrum that um, the issue is not preserving the highest quality, best healthcare system in the world. I worked in the US Senate for the Senate Help Committee on the writing and passage of the ACA, and one of the constant critiques that we heard from Republicans and conservatives is, well, of course, we all know that the United States has the best and highest quality healthcare system in the world. And it's hard to go through this book and not seriously question that assertion. And uh, there, there are many, many polls I haven't seen any more recently that showed a real partisan discrepancy in terms of do you agree that the Un United States has the best healthcare system in the world? Generally speaking, about two-thirds of Republicans would identify as saying yes. About a third of Democrats would say yes. And so with this real discrepancy, and I see kind of here with this book somewhat of a convergence in terms of, um, of looking at this in a broader and, uh, and, and more critical way. Um, second thing is I think it's good that the book recognizes that you know, many of the times when there's a critique of the healthcare system, it tends to focus on one actor. So it's all about the drug companies. It's all about the insurance companies. It's all about the physicians or the hospitals. And I, I applaud the approach of the book where it's like we have met the enemy and it is all of us, even patients and consumers at various times, but so it's not just, let's villainize insurance, let's villainize drug companies. Everybody's got a piece of responsibility for the mess that we're in. 
And, uh, and the third thing I think is that, is that it's appropriate and good that it doesn't villainize patients and consumers as the source of the problem. Because the truth is, if you look at the international data, and I'll share some of it with you, um, it is not because we consume too many medical services in the United States versus our OECD peer nations. We actually consume less. We have fewer physicians per capita, fewer nurses per capita. We have fewer days spent in the hospital, shorter lengths of stay. By most measures, except for the high-tech procedures like MRI and CAT scan, we are not over consumers by any global standard. And so I think it's good, again, that it doesn't fall into that trap. Um, so I, so I look at it, I say, you know, there's, there's a lot to talk about here. There's a lot of, of, of really helpful, good stuff. And I think that there's actually probably more of an agreement on the nature and, and scope of the problem than I might have realized before I, before I read the book. I think the differences, the differences come down to what is the cause of the problem and what are the solutions. Um, but if you look for places to start, I think there's some good things to start. Um, I, I have some slides to share if they come up. Whoops. Here we go. Just a few pictures to share with you. Pictures are worth a thousand words. Uh, this is US versus other OECD health systems going from 1980 up through 2013. Uh, we are the black line, and you can see if you go back to 1980, uh, we were the highest spender or one, high, or one of the highest spenders. Uh, something happened in the 1980s, and we broke loose like a bat out of hell, and we have been creating a gap between us and our peer nations uh, ever since a flatlining in the 1990s for a few years, a flatlining over the course, over the first half of this decade, although it is creeping up and trending up again. All nations are going up, if you can see that. All, pretty much all nations are going up, but just by a rate far less than what we experience in the United States. A reasonable question which Austin Fracht asked in the, uh, Boston, in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago is, what the heck happened in the 1980s? A uh, lot, uh, lot of consideration for that. I have my own thoughts I'll get to. Just a little bit about healthcare spending, and this is just among those 11 advanced nations. This is from uh, my colleague Ashish Jha in the Journal of the American Medical Association in March. Uh, we have the third highest GDP among those 11 nations. Uh, we also have the highest poverty rate. We are, if we want to look at what we're number one for, we are number one. We have the highest rate of poverty at 24% versus a mean of 18%. By the way, and it's not because we're aging, to, we have too many elderly people. We actually have the lowest rate of folks over age 65 of any of those 11 countries by a significant margin. On health spending, of course, we are number one, whichever way you look at it, but looking at it just on a per capita basis. Uh, not quite twice the mean at 5,400. Um, our health spending, 17.8% of GDP in 2016. Uh, the other countries, Australia, 9.6%. The second highest, Switzerland, at 12.4%. Now, the question was asked, and I think it's worthwhile to say, so who cares how big it gets? Well, the question is, what value do we get out of the money that we're spending? And as we compare ourselves to some of the nations that we would look at as our international peers, it raises a lot of questions. It raises a lot of legitimate concerns. Sorry, I'm going to run over here and get a 
some water. Here's something that was left out of the book that is not in conflict with the book, but I think is also equally important when we want to look at the US healthcare system. We're good on smoking. We're the second best rate of adult smoking folks over age 15, 15 and over, at 11.4% versus a mean of 16.6%. So yippee for us on that. We're not bad in terms of alcohol consumption. Obesity, we are by far the worst. By far the worst, 70% of adults are either overweight or obese. That's versus a mean of 55% for those other 10 nations with a range of 23 to 63%. We want to talk about a significant causal factor for why healthcare spending is so high. You can't leave this out of the analysis. Our life expectancy is the worst. We are the worst among these 11 countries at 78.8 years with a range of 80.7 to 83.9 and a mean of 81.7. Infant mortality. Infant, we talk about you know, quality medical care, wonderful procedures. We are the worst. We are the worst among those 11 at 5.8 per thousand lives births versus a mean of 3.6%. Highest neonatal mortality, highest maternal mortality highest maternal mortality in the United States. Good for us, second lowest, second worst low birth weight. So, so it's not just about the prices. There's a whole other set of indicators that say we have a system that is seriously heading in the wrong direction. And by the way, on life expectancy, some people say, well, too many traffic accidents, too much <laughs> other kinds of things going on. But this shows you life expectancy in the US versus other OECD nations going back to 1960. We used to be the best. We used to have the longest life expectancy. And look at what's happened. You can start and you can look at, um, you can look at, uh, at, at 2000, where for the first time we go into the red or the pink or whatever color you want to call it. But really, you see now there was this drop in the 60s. I don't know what that was about. But this decline that we're on now, it started in the early 1980s again. We keep coming back to the 1980s, right? But just, just soak this picture into your mind, okay? Say, what the heck is going on here? It's not, this is not Republican or Democrat. This is not one administration for another. This is a trend going back now about 40 years. And we are now experiencing the first time, I think on record, three years in a row declining life expectancy in the United States, huh? God bless America. We are, as you can see from this chart, the high spender on medical care. That's the dark part of this line. Here's the United States here. Elizabeth Bradley, formerly from the Yale School of Public Health, wanted to ask the question, said, I wonder how we look when it comes to non-medical social service spending. And so she did that and tracked it against the other OECD nations. And you know what? We're the biggest spender on hard medical, and we're the fifth lowest on non-medical social service, affordable housing, nutrition, childcare, those kinds of things, those kinds of services. So real question about a system that is out of kilter, out of kilter. This is just a chart you have to see on obesity. Here's extremely obese men, there's women over there. It's not so much the rise in overweight, but it's the rise in obese men and obese women. And when does it kick off? 
the me decade, right? Happy days. This is from the Commonwealth Fund. If you've never studied the Commonwealth Fund, they're a foundation that researches the US healthcare system. They've been doing comparative apples to apples comparisons among the same 11 OECD nations for about close to 20 years now. They've put out five of these where they evaluate systems. They do telephone surveys of physicians and patients in all of these countries and measure them on care, access, efficiency, equity, outcomes. And they always have an overall ranking at the top. And the one consistency, the one consistency among the five times that they've done this survey, every single time, the United States comes in dead last. Dead last over the past 18 years or so. And I tell my students, by the way, who you can see here, you see Canada, they're number nine. The first four, they were actually the second worst. This time, they're the third. But I remind my students who get up in Boston, who every day they get up and next to their bed, they kneel down, they say a prayer to the shrine of the perpetual Canadian single-payer system. Just remember, in this, Canada only looks good in comparison to us. Okay. Now, the diagnosis in the book, the diagnosis in the book is it's all about politics and third-party payment. Okay, reasonable assertion, but what I will tell you is this. Every one of these other 10 countries have politics galore in their healthcare system. And dare I say, every healthcare system in the world, including your beloved Singapore, has politics galore in your system. So I don't, and I don't know how, particularly uh, with the interpretation of our Supreme Court, how you get away from that at all. But it's not just the United States that has politics, and it's not just the United States that has third-party payment. Every one of these systems that spends on average half of what we do, every one of these systems that has far better coverage, we cover 90%, they cover 99 or 100%, every one of them, Every one of them, their average is close to 100% when you take us out of the mix. Every one of them covers everybody, and their public satisfaction with their system is off the chart compared to ours. Okay? So do we have to go to the South Pacific, to Singapore, to a quasi-police state, to really find a place where we can do better? Just imagine, take any, and by the way, some people when they think about other systems, they think, well, it's either Canada or the United Kingdom, and that's it, and there are no other choices. It's just not true. Germany, Netherlands, Switzerland, all private insurance, but heavily government regulated, nonprofit, and price controls. In every one of these systems, they control prices. They control prices. Just a few more, by the way. It's been said a number of times that the ACA, by the way, I note in the book, several hundred, I couldn't count them all, references to Obamacare, and never once a reference to the Affordable Care Act. Of course, a significant share of Americans don't realize they're actually the same thing, but that's another issue. So I wondered if there was any reference to the Affordable Care Act, because I couldn't find any. So I went to the index, and lo and behold, there in the index, it said Affordable Care Act. And I, was, I said, oh boy, I wonder where these pages are. And I looked in the Affordable Care Act, it says, see Obamacare. <laughs> it is said 
that nothing happened on cost, in fact, that costs are going up. I think there's a different perspective that you need to see. This is the annual rate of US healthcare spending in the 90s, the 2000s, and 2000 to 2016. This is private insurance, this is Medicare, and this is Medicaid, okay? The 90s, the 2000s, and the first seven years of this decade, okay? Per person, now not aggregate, because you've got a lot of new people coming into Medicare because of the aging of the baby boomers. I turned 65 on May 21st, so God bless socialized medicine, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, but, and you've got a lot, and you've got a lot of people coming into Medicaid, but look at the per person rates of growth, okay? I will tell you, I will make the claim very clearly that the huge amount of this, of Medicare, was completely because of things done in the Affordable Care Act. Extended the life of the Medicare Trust Fund, it was supposed to go out in 2015 or 16, extended the life to 2030. It's now moving in the wrong direction because of recent changes. The decline in the cost of private health insurance, a lot of different things going on there, but one significant thing was something in the law called the Cadillac tax, which is a method to try to control the tax expenditures associated with health insurance. And of course, there's a war on the Cadillac tax, not because it's gonna be ineffective, but because in fact it is being effective. Last thing I just want to say, and then I will stop, is um, the notion that deductibles, co-payment, skin in the game, having patients pay more is a good thing. I think that it has value, and I think that it's also important to recognize where it doesn't necessarily have value, and we need to incorporate that in our thinking. So this is from the National Bureau of Economic Research. This is a study from 2015. This is just a little bit from their conclusion. We studied decisions and spending behavior for a large population of employees required to switch into high deductible insurance after years of having completely free healthcare. The change caused a spending drop. The spending reductions were due almost entirely to consumer quantity reductions across a broad range of services, including some that were likely of high value in terms of health and potential to avoid future costs. Consumers did not switch to cheaper providers either immediately in the first year or afterward in the second year. And this is my last slide, just say. This is from uh, New York Times based upon a study just from this last April. Uh, the behavior of women in high deductible plans who get news of a cancer diagnosis and how they respond. If they're in a high deductible plan, they are far more likely to wait to get services that they need. So you put skin in the game, you put people at financial risk for all kinds of healthcare decisions, they will forego unnecessary care, and they will also forego medically necessary care. And so rather than seeing these kinds of instruments as blunt tools that we can use to try to bludgeon the healthcare system, I think we've got to be a lot more careful and cautious with how we do that. So thank you for allowing me to make some comments and congratulations on the book. Thank you.
Uh, am I on? Yes. Okay. I am going to ask each of you a question that will be centered around me because I'm a journalist. Uh, we're fairly vain people. And then I'm going to ask you both a collective question. Uh, so first, Charles Silver. Uh, I, when I moved to the Washington Post, as I did in, on, on March 1st, I had, a, I had two healthcare options. One was a high deductible plan that was like, Basically, you needed an advanced degree in accounting to figure out how all the balance billing was going to work. Or I could go to Kaiser. And I thought my husband and I are both healthcare journalists. Let's try Kaiser. Let's see what national health, what socialized medicine is like here in the good old USA. And I have to say, like, it's fine. And I found that when I lived abroad. It's fine. Right? And people actually like it. I was, in, I was at Kaiser. I was getting a, uh, a checkup. My blood pressure randomly started to drop for reasons that are still unclear. They had me downstairs in the emergency room getting fluids. I never had to worry. The whole process was seamless. And my experience with, with Kaiser is that it really is seamless in a way that you cannot do in a private system. Um, Moreover, what we know is people hate deductibles. They hate thinking about it. And as uh, economist Robin Hansen has argued, in part this is because we hate having to make decisions about our or a loved one's care based on medicine. So if we... Based on money. Ba based on money, sorry. Uh, yes, we like doing it based on medicine, not on the cost. Um, given that, if we, if we try to use government policy to move to a system where people are, are paying more, are exposed to more costs, you know, maybe politically this is the system we have because we want it, because voters like it. Um, well, that's kind of two different questions. <laughs> Just two? Uh, <laughs> voters kind of like whatever is presented to them in a particular context. I mean, we could talk about the logic of voting and sure. the strangeness of voting as a way of making decisions. But we and, know that consumers, you know, when they are choosing health care plans, um, they do have a preference for lower deductibles. They really don't like being oh, exposed maybe they to their do. costs. That's fine. Maybe there are some people, maybe there are lots of people who have that preference. And if there are lots of people who don't like dealing with deductibles, then what we should expect to see in a first party payment market is a proliferation of concierge style um, soup to nuts programs for people who don't like dealing with deductibles. Um, you know, that's perfectly fine as an option. And really, in our healthcare system, given how enormous it is, it would be shocking to find that there wasn't some place where you were comfortable, right? We're spending such an enormous amount of money that really, if everybody has to be uncomfortable at every place they go for healthcare in order for us to criticize the system, well, we're, we're never gonna criticize the system. So uh, a market approach doesn't place any limitation on the kind of arrangement that people could enter into. It just allows um, people to choose options and it creates incentives for even places like Kaiser to figure out how to offer consumers a, a better deal. Um, and, and so I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, now, uh, Professor McDonough. Um, I have to say, uh, when I chose Kaiser, I feel like I'm on like a game show right now. We're going on to the second round. Um, no, I have to say that when I chose Kaiser, at the back of my mind, I thought, if I get cancer, I'll switch next year. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Yep. And that's the option that people in 
single-payer systems don't have. It depends on the system. You have more freedom in Switzerland, no freedom in, in very limited freedom unless you're wealthy in Britain or Canada, no freedom in Canada. Um, and that that is something that people also really like. They really like having choice over their doctors. They really like being able to get all of the, the any treatment that they want and not having someone one come in. And I will say that, you know, when I was uninsured, you know, for all that Kaiser seems fine, and I think that they, they do offer in some ways a more easy financially financial experience. I had an autoimmune disease. I was going to an expensive pulmonologist, and I didn't have any money. And I managed to pay out of pocket. And one thing that I did do was say, do I really need this test, or are you just doing it? And it was shocking how much uh, doctors would be like, yeah, we can skip that one. Now, the government abroad, of course, makes those decisions. But people in America do not like the government making those decisions. And the politics of it, I, I would argue with something that you said during your presentation, which is the politics are worse here. Our frag are the way that our political structure works compared to a parliamentary system. Just it is more prone to lobbying. It is far more prone to constituent uh, lobbying interest groups. Um, it is, as we have all noticed, uh, now completely dysfunctional and, and bitterly partisan divided. So does that make you think about um, what we can realistically get out of this system and what the cost pressures, I mean, maybe the reason we have a super expensive system in which no one is controlling everything and it all looks kind of crazy is that that's what the American political system produces. Well, it is what the American political system produces, but the question is, I think the reason we're all here is because we think probably, or we hope, and we would like to figure out a way to do better. And it doesn't necessarily mean, I don't believe in nirvana. I don't believe that there is a healthcare nirvana in, in any of these systems. And I do think there are things that are better, and, and, and I do. I wanted to make that point, so thank you for making it. You know, there is politics everywhere. And there are controversies and issues around healthcare all in every one of these countries. And you know, a lot of people, you probably your eyes popped when you saw United Kingdom number one. Um, there, you, lots and lots of people have questions about that. But every system has its problem. But I, I dare say, I don't think there's another system where healthcare is this gargantuan life and death political struggle, where it's. Uh, take no prisoners, and one side has to trounce the other and drive them into submission. And one wonders about that, but you, the other difference is this. Every one of these other systems, and I, since I went to Harvard, I travel around to other countries a lot and see other countries and get to understand them better. There's there not some an, bruising political healthcare battles in other countries. Oh, there are, oh, absolutely, <laughs> but there's not another system where we're arguing about should every citizen have a right to basic healthcare services? I mean, they look at us, and I describe what goes on, and their eyes bug out. They just can't believe that American society can't get over that basic issue. Everybody's in. There are rules that affect everybody that balance the system. They change and move and get reformed all the time. And it is not just the all-consuming political issue. And I think they're a lot happier than we are, too. But we have to turn everything in our system into a morality play now. We have to figure out, well, OK, 
will agree to give healthcare access to some people, but we only are gonna give them to the people we regard as deserving. So we're gonna put work requirements on Medicaid. We're gonna put all these requirements for, can you get protections against pre-existing conditions? And other countries just look at us. They spend half of what we do. They cover everybody, higher satisfaction. They're not depriving themselves in any significant way. And they're a lot happier. And I think it's partly because, I mean, because it's obviously, it's not just healthcare that we're beating each other senseless about. It's, it's this phase, this stage, this state of American political society where we are, where everything is win-lose, and there's no more any win-win any in terms of the process. That's an over-exaggeration. Macro was a win-win because the losers were the taxpayers, of course, who paid for it. To play it. off the question I, I asked Professor Silver, in which of these countries would you, wish, would you want to get cancer? If you had a rare form of cancer and you needed to get it treated, which of these systems would you want to be in to Ger get that cancer? Germany. Why Germany? Germany's got, you, you have good access, you have good, a good healthcare system, you have quality providers who outperform the United States, uh, you have full access. I, we've been doing some work with, uh, with, with one uh, pharmaceutical company on, on some training issues, and I, I, I was talking to one guy who was the country lead in Germany, and he was the country lead in the United States. And so I just had to ask him, I said, so if you had your druthers, which country do you prefer in terms of just how pharmaceutical structure works? He said, hands down, it's easy, Germany. In Germany, you have one process, you have one negotiation on your drug for a price, and that's it for the system. The United States, you got 500 of these. You do one, you got 499 more, and it's never over. There's a simpler, easier way to do this, and, and there's a way to do this that just, you know, would actually, I think, advance the goals of libertarians in the United States because there'd be, if we could figure out how to create a more affordable economic system that's not hypothetical, it's done in the rest of the world, we would have so much more money for tax cuts or whatever else you want to spend it on. Well, this brings me to my next question, and this was the subject of my column this week, fortuitously. So uh, uh, as you probably saw, there's a new paper out in Nature Medicine that uh, shows that there's a new uh, therapy called adoptive cell therapy. This is the third paper on this. Um, it, you basically, you, you find immune cells that are primed to attack a patient's cancer, you remove them, you grow them in a lab, you infuse massive numbers of them into the patient's body. They've now had four uh, out of an original trial of 45 people who seem to be complete responders, uh, as well as other people who are, looks more, more like chemotherapy. This is going to be ferociously expensive, and it's not the kind of classic argument about pharma, because this isn't a high marginal cost, high fixed cost, low marginal cost product. This is going to be expensive for each one we do. Something like CAR T, which is now CAR T cell therapy, which now looks is now costing somewhere between three hundred and four four hundred and fifty thousand dollars per patient. Um, and so, one question is, I guess there's this is a three part question, and I'll ask each of you to sort of you know pick the bits that you want. The first question is. If we get costs down, what happens to therapies like this? Do, does biotech go in and develop these treatments? Now, the treatment was developed at NCI, um, but the doctor that I talked to said, the researcher, lead researcher said, you know, we need 
biotech, because those guys are the people who simplify it for production in, in, normal, in normal hospital programs. Um, the second question is, um, if we haven't killed the incentive to develop these therapies, uh, you're, in, in your model, uh, a bunch of people wouldn't be able to afford it because they, they would be exposed to that cost. In your model, the government might well say, yeah, we, we could cure your cancer, but sorry, it's too pricey. I got a different answer. Um, but the third, question, the, the third question is, I, I think that, you know, NICE is already looking at this. I think that a lot of these therapies are going to go into production, even in national healthcare systems. But I wouldn't have the choice. It would be made for me by the government. The government would decide whether I get it or not. I would have no recourse if I wanted it and my government had decided not to give it to me. The third question is, I look at these numbers, and yeah, they're big. We spend 20% of our GDP. But you know, we're a really rich country. We go to the supermarket, there's like a whole wall of things that just make my shirt softer. What else should we want to spend our money on than something that might cure cancer? Right? If you had if you were diagnosed with cancer today, what do you own? What public service do you get that you would rather have than something that could kill your tumors dead and give you 10, 20, 30 more years with your family? Um, and so I will throw that, that out to the rest of the, to both panelists, and then I will, well, uh, after this, we will go to the audience for a question. If you're looking for a healthcare system that pays for everything for every person, then you're uh, just talking about a recipe for bankruptcy, right? I mean, at some point, people have to do without things. And the only question is, is how we go about deciding who does without what. We currently have a completely haphazard approach to that. Uh, any politician who talks about rationing is immediately giving up his or her job, right? Because rationing is the third rail of health politics in this country. So basically, the government just keeps expanding the smorgasbord of things that it pays for regardless of price. And, and we can see the effect of that, right, on healthcare spending. And we're, as, as I think the point of one of the slides uh, was that uh, uh, we're over-relying on medical care instead of other kinds of things that contribute to health, like housing, nutrition, exercise, <clears throat> a whole bunch of other things. And so um, we know our priorities uh, uh, matter, and we have to talk about um, how they're going to be set. And it seems to me that we really don't have a superior way of making those determinations uh, other than by a market in which consumers decide what they want. And sometimes consumers will wind up not getting things that they might like because they are too expensive. That is an unavoidable problem in any kind uh, of system. So, uh, you know, we can't ask for perfection, it seems to me. Instead, we have to ask for things that uh, are reasonable. Now, a question you asked is, what else would I want to spend money on besides a cure for cancer that would expend life for, uh, you know, another 20 years? Well, how about fully funded state pension plans? That's a $3 trillion shortage that affects the possibility for retirement of hundreds of thousands, millions of people across the country, right? Their retirements could potentially be impoverished if these pension funds that they have relied upon uh, go bankrupt, right? Well, why wouldn't we want to fully fund those? What about student loans, right? We have a trillion dollars worth of student loan debt out there that we think might not be collectible. 
wouldn't it have been better to be able to pay those loans back instead of sending a trillion dollars of waste into the healthcare system? Setting up these questions in terms of, oh, am I going to save this little baby here, you know, uh, or uh, you know, drive a Rolls Royce? I mean, this is just a false choice. Right? We have to make sensible decisions, understanding that there are trade-offs and that we're making the wrong trade-offs now. I mean, I, I thought that was the whole point of your talk, is that we don't spend enough on things that are conducive to good health. We spend way too much money on intensive medical treatments that give very marginal returns. In fact, I believe we have passed the point of positive marginal returns on many of these things. We're into negative marginal returns. We're into over-treatment where we're shortening people's lives instead of doing other things that would make people uh, better off. And so, you know, my feeling about this um, is that uh, if you think systematically that the government can come up with a better way of spending money than consumers can using their own judgment, great, show me that, right? Show me where the government has done that and I'll say, fine, let's do that. But I have never seen it. You know, what I see is the government constantly skewing priorities in ways that don't make any sense. And indeed, that again, I think that is partly your point, right? Is we're crushing each other in these political battles that are uh, stupid, right? They're pointless. Uh, you know, so what? Okay, so we preserve Obamacare. Great. We preserve Obamacare. Now we're going to spend another $10 trillion on crap that doesn't help us. Great. We destroy Obamacare. Okay, well, now we're still going to spend a whole bunch of money in some other way on stuff that doesn't help us. I don't view Obamacare as the enemy, right? I view political intrusion into the healthcare market as the enemy. And by the way, uh, that leads me to something that I think was something of a cheap shot. Uh, two, <laughs> two cheap shots. One is, yes, we refer to the program. We do say it's the ACA at the beginning of the book, but we refer to the program as Obamacare. No, you don't. We don't? Jeff Flyer did, but you didn't. Okay. Well, we refer to it as Obamacare. I did read well, it. <laughs> that's because everybody refers to it as Obamacare. No, and, that's not true. Well, hang on for one second. If you are implying from that that I have something against Obama, you have a fact that is standing in your way, which is I'm a Democrat. I voted for him twice. I don't support Obamacare, but I did prefer Obama to the opponents in both of these elections. So, you know, this is not racism on my part or hatred of the left. This is simply the way people refer to this program, and that's why I think it was a cheap shot. The other cheap shot is Singapore. The other cheap shot is Singapore. We use sing now, first of all, is Singapore a democracy? I don't know. It's kind of like a democracy. They have elections. Um, but is it a democracy I would emulate in all respects? Absolutely not. For example, I think we should end the war on drugs tomorrow. Uh, in Singapore, they execute drug dealers, right? The, I'm not on the same page with Singapore. Uh, has Singapore done some things right? Absolutely, they've done some right. They've taken the average... Uh, uh, income, the average wealth status of their people in the short span of about 40 years and taking it from absolute poverty to making it one of the richest countries in the world. Good for them. I wish we could do that. I wish we could have the same impact on things like housing instability. Do you know Singapore has the highest rate of home ownership of any country in the world? They don't have housing instability. If you care about health, 
You should care about housing instability because housing instability contributes to health problems, okay? So there are some things about Singapore I like. In the book, we use Singapore to make exactly one point, and that is a plan that requires people to save for the future. Their own money in their own accounts can work. People will do that. We constantly were getting this pushback. Oh, you want people to save their own money to meet their future medical needs. They'll never do that. Well, it's being done in one place. As far as I know, there's only one country that requires it, and that's Singapore. And it works. They have the highest rate of savings of any country in the world because they mandate savings. And as a result, guess what? Their healthcare system is always fully funded. They don't have unfunded liabilities of the sort that we have for Medicare and Social Security. Their system is fully funded and is immune from electoral interference. There's none of this stuff where you give out special benefits in order to get votes. You put in the money yourself while you're earning money, and then you spend it later when you're older on your healthcare needs and on your housing needs. And it works, and that is the only thing we draw upon Singapore for as proof of concept. Thank you. <laughs> I think we should ask Michael to do a session on Singapore. <laughs> but given time and getting yes. to the audience, so, so let's forget the hypothetical about cancer and let's think about a real situation a few years ago, Savaldi, a cure, yep. a cure for hepatitis C, okay? So what happens in Germany? Germany, they have a system for evaluating the value of new pharmaceuticals. It's called AMNOG, A-M-N-O-G. AMNOG stands for a German word with 300 letters that I can't pronounce, but um, the system works like this. Uh, you want to put on your new medication onto the market. You go for it on day one, charge whatever price you want. The same day, you give every shred of evidence that exists in your possession to a research organization, a nonprofit research organization known as ICWIG, I-Q-W-I-G. Again, 300 letters. And they take all the evidence, and within a year, they come out with a recommendation. They give it a grade from one to six. If it's one, two, or three, it is a genuine beneficial therapy compared to everything else that exists. So it's a comparative clinical analysis. It's not like NICE does in Britain, quality adjusted life years and so forth. Just does it, what's the evidence that it tells us? And it says, so for Savaldi, it's a number one. It's a blockbuster. If it's a number two, it's a significant therapeutic benefit. If it's three, it's a big benefit, nothing to write home about, but you get into that space. If it's four, five, and six, it's no added clinical benefit based upon what is out there now. It goes into reference pricing and basically forms of generic pricing. If you get one, two, or three, then the board that manages the system decides uh, do they agree with the recommendation from the ICWIG, and they will give it your, the final grade. And then the drug manufacturer sits down with the collection of the payers all across Germany, and they negotiate a price for the system. So it's a system that absolutely thoroughly 
rewards the innovators, and it does not allow the folks who are putting out products and using marketing, advertising, direct-to-consumer advertising to basically win the market war because they've got the best ad campaign and the best slogan or whatever it is. So yeah, there are ways to do it, and we can see it in other systems around the world do essentially the same thing, including well, sure. the, Singapore. The hypothetical, though, I chose that hypothetical for a reason, um, which is that it's not a high fixed cost, low marginal cost product. It's, right? And, and in drug pricing, there's always going to be the argument for driving the, the price down to marginal cost the day after you've invented it. right? And, and we don't have time to get into the exciting question of what happens to drug discovery in this system. But in a, in, with a technology that is extremely expensive, might be extremely beneficial, and does not have a high fixed cost, low marginal cost uh, things uh, structure so that you can just say to the manufacturer, I'm going to give you this price or you can not sell me any. What do you do about that in your system? I'm sorry. What do you, what do, you do? Are you talking about do the you, drug or the cancer? No, the, the, cancer the reason I chose the cancer treatment was that it doesn't, that you can't just jerk the price down by telling the pharmaceutical company, you give me this price or you don't sell in my country. Right? I mean, this is a thing that is going to be expensive because it's expensive. It's labor intensive. It requires a lot of technology. That's what's driving a lot of our healthcare costs, right? I mean, veterinary costs display pretty much the same pattern, dental costs. Um, and so there is something, you know, beyond technology seems to play a strong role in driving costs up everywhere, as you see. They've been going up in, in every country. What do you do about that technology? What do you do about um, how much can we save? And should we make these, these, uh, these treatments available? The question is in terms of saving. There's two kinds of savings. One is lowering the absolute cost, which is what the book is trying to propose to do, huh? versus what Gail Walensky says, which is lowering the rate of growth to be within some acceptable limit that fits with the growth of the overall economy. So two different measures, depending upon your goal. And it's really hard to just pick apart a hypothetical, a breakthrough cancer treatment. I don't know of any of those countries where people are failing to get the new technology. In some cases, in like Canada, there are weights. Canada has some serious problems with their system that is not being seriously looked at. Those are not big problems in Switzerland and the Netherlands and Germany. I'm not trying not to stage finding, the, the national health care versus US health care. What I'm asking is, we look at this level of 20% or 10% or 13% or whatever that number is, and it seems outrageous to us. But what else, as we get richer, what else should we be spending our money on if not treating our illnesses? What is a better place for us to be pouring our money as a society and as individuals? Infrastructure, education, um, environmental protection, um, arts and culture. Um, uh, you, you name it. I mean, there's, there's a lot more. Um, uh, uh, better housing, um, so much of people's illness comes from living in substandard, unhealthy housing that then creates the costs on the medical system. Lead poisoning, for example, uh, in, in Flint, Michigan, but it's a, it's a huge problem all over the country. Um, I, there are many, many other ways. We call them the, in public health terms, we call them the social determinants of health. And the social determinants of health, like your housing, your diet, your exercise, 
your, your, and your clean or dirty environment, that has a lot more to do with whether you're going to live long, whether you're going to live healthy, or whether you're going to live short and unhealthy than what we invest in our medical care system. So we need a balance. And what we could see from that chart that I show is that we are a system that is badly out of balance badly out of balance. And yes, it's relating to prices and all of the rest, but there's a lot more to it as well. There's some basic 101 public health stuff that we're just not getting right because everything that we care about in society is being squeezed to pay for the stomach that is never satiated, the medical care system. Uh, okay, we are going to have time for one question from the audience. <laughs> one. So begin the There's Hunger Games now. Uh, <laughs> the person who like kills the most people running to the front. Um, one hand. Uh, we've got many hands. If we just now give I one word that. answers, maybe we can get three. Uh, okay, let's take three questions. Uh, I'm going to take one from each. Uh, you, sir, in the beige shirt in the back. Uh, you, sir, uh, right up here. And... Uh, you, sir, over there, because you're the only person holding hands, uh, holding your hand up in that row. Uh, if, you, if we could do all three of them, and then I'm just going to ask you to pick from, from what you hear. Thank you. My name's Steve Hankin. Um, it seems that a, a lot of the discussion is about one end is socialized, would be completely socialized medicine versus um, in letting individuals decide all these things. Isn't it possible that we're talking past each other in the sense that that's, um, that we're talking past each other in the, in the sense that uh, Obamacare may be worse than socialized medicine, but it doesn't mean that that it, that they're both not worse than than individual uh, letting individuals decide it, and do you think that in a sense this is an issue that you're not really f focusing on? That the fact that maybe socialized medicine is better than Obamacare or even better than what we had before, but it doesn't mean that that it's that any of them are better than uh, letting individuals decide everything. Hi. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank, thank you both and thank the Cato Institute. I think it's important that wherever you stand on this issue to really understand all the sides. Uh, my question, that being said, is for you, Dr. Silver. Um, you mentioned that um, the cure to this whole problem is something that we already see in other industries, and that is um, allowing consumer choice and the free market. And um, you mentioned that there's no similar huge price increases in, say, automobile industry. Um, to healthcare, but in the automobile industry, some people can afford like luxury cars, Lamborghinis, and I'm here, I drive a 98 Accord. Um, you mentioned the, the cosmetics surgery industry as uh, one of the places where we already see uh, the first party payment sector, um, but even in cosmetic surgery, like a facelift can cost a couple thousand dollars, or if you go to the best cosmetic surgeon in Los Angeles, many tens of thousands of dollars for people who can afford to get that best care possible. Um, now, I'm of the opinion that this sort of system shouldn't exist um, in general healthcare practice. So my question, I suppose, is how do you reconcile this preferential treatment for the wealthiest consumers that is the natural concomitant of allowing the free market to reign in this sector? Hi. Um, two points. Um, 
One of the things that, that uh, really got me was from your uh, talk, John, was the um, obesity rate in the United States, which is obvious. But also, counter to that, we have 48 million people in the United States that are on food stamps. I suspect you're probably not in favor of reducing that number or, or work requirements for it. And just care to answer if you'd like. Also, um, the um, life expectancy in the United States, we come in dead last. I'm under the impression there was a, an article written in Wall Street Journal not too long ago by Andy Kessler, who says that the Europeans determine that number much differently than we do in the United States. It's got something to do with child survival and that we're actually slightly better than most of the OCD countries. I just wanted to make those two points. Uh, all right, uh, Professor Silver. You well, I guess I'll, I'll take up the question that was directed to me. Thank you. And I'm not a doctor, just professor. Um, <laughs> Uh, I guess I'm the only person here not a doctor. No, I, uh, I, you're not a doctor. I'm not a doctor. Oh, you're not a doctor. <laughs> um, anyway, um, yeah, in any kind of market economy, the wealthier people are going to get more and better of stuff uh, than the poor people. There is no way to avoid that and still have a market economy. Uh, what I think we should be concerned about is minimum quality of care, enabling people to get uh, a level of care that is decent. Right now, let's be clear about this. We have an incredibly expensive system in which a lot of people get either terrible care or no care, right? So it's not like the current system is perfect. We don't have to be perfect in order to be better than the current system. First point to emphasize. Second point to emphasize is that there is a straightforward way of handling the problem of insufficient resources in a first party payer context and it's called welfare. Right? We have a welfare program for the poor in Medicaid. It's a welfare program, right? Uh, it's just a badly designed welfare program. We have other welfare programs like the earned income tax credit and um, the child tax credit which I think are better designed because they let people take, they give people money and people can spend them on the things that they want to spend them on. So they enable them to get a minimum quality of something. It might be housing, it might be food, it might be education or whatever. But it enables them to decide what they want to get. And David and I are very sensitive to this concern about how the poor are treated. And our proposal is, again, as I put up on the slide, it's not to get rid of these programs necessarily. It's to change the way they're structured so that the money goes to the beneficiaries who can then decide how they want to spend it. And, you know, some of them may not spend it the way you and I would like, right? But that is the, that's the core of individual liberty, is that I don't get to impose my views on how you spend your money, and you don't get to impose your views on how I money, I spend my money, what we have right now is an incredibly paternalistic system that limits the way people can spend money. In fact, they can't spend the money at all, right? They, they have to go to a provider and then the money gets paid to the provider. And, you know, I'm comfortable. I don't think poor people are bad people. I grew up poor. I grew up in a single family home. My father unfortunately passed away when I was a little boy and left us basically nothing. So I grew up poor. I depended on social security. I know poverty. And we were not bad people. We were just poor people. Money meant a lot to us, and we got to use it on the things that helped us. And so 
That's the way I would treat the poor, is uh, give them money, let them decide how they want to spend it, and not have these incredibly, administrably uh, impossible programs. And I would just, I would just say, I would just hearken, though, I, I, understand, I take your point, um, hearken to uh, Gail Walensky and what she said. And, and, and one of the fundamentals of a healthcare system is, is the 80-20 rule, which is ex quite prominent across, across global society. Every year, 20% uh, of the people use 80% of the medical care spending, and 5% of the people use 50% of the spending. And that is so remarkably consistent. And it's not year to year the same 5 or 20%. It keeps changing. And so you can go a good number of years where you're really doing OK with your little spending account, and then you get that catastrophic year, and you're out to lunch. And we don't have to treat our citizens that way. There are other ways to do it. It's not, it's not United States versus socialized medicine. Take a look at Switzerland. Take a look at Sweden. Take a look at the Netherlands, where they're very, very different models. The only thing is they all do so much better than we do across the board on spending, on key public health measures, on quality of care. It's just a stunning difference. And so the issue is not that we pay too much. The issue is that we get such poor value for the extraordinary resources that we invest. And I think that this book tells me that there's some room for some work across the political divide on some of these things. They weren't necessarily abundantly apparent here today. But I come out reading your book um, much more hopeful about uh, future dialogues and future ways that perhaps we can find places to actually work together. Awesome. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's a good note to end on. Uh, you uh, reconvene in this room at 12.15 to hear Deputy HHS Secretary Eric D. Horgan. Uh, and thank you all for coming, and thanks to our panelists for doing such a terrific job.